Here's a quick word from our sponsor. Vercel is the platform for front-end developers, providing the speed and reliability innovators need to create at the moment of inspiration. Founded by the creators of Next.js, Vercel has zero configuration support for 35-plus front-end frameworks, including SvelteKit. We enable the world's largest brands like Under Armour, eBay, and Nintendo to iterate faster and create quality software. Try out Vercel today to experience the easiest way to use Svelte. Pew, pew, pew. Welcome back to another Svelte Radio episode. It's me, Kev, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by two of my beautiful co-hosts, Brittany and Anthony. Hello. Hello. Yeah, that's it. That, that works. That works. That works. Today, we've got a pretty cool episode for you guys. Uh, we're interviewing Wasita and Eshin. I just realized I sh- probably should have asked uh, how to pronounce your names beforehand, but <laughs> hello. Welcome to the podcast. That was perfect. Did perfect. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hello. Great. Great. So you guys are not software developers, right? <laughs> no. <Nope. Ask. laughs> what do you guys do? Who are you? Why are you here? You've made a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so would you like to introduce yourselves? <laughs> What do you do? Sure. So we're researchers. I'm actually a postdoctoral fellow at the Consortium for Interacting Minds and Center for Cognitive Neuroscience up at Dartmouth College in the in the U.S. And uh, I have a background in human social psychology and cognitive neuroscience. And we run experiments. And part of that does uh, involve Svelte. And so happy to talk about that. Um, as for me, I'm currently a PhD student in the Computational and Social Affective Neuroscience Lab here at Dartmouth. Esha and I are actually in the same lab, and we're also in like the Psych and Brain Sciences Department. And currently, my work is kind of focused on what sort of things that people communicate about during shared experiences, such as when they're watching a show together, and what it is in that what we communicate and how we say it props how we feel connected to each other. Ooh. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Oh, sounds like you're you. doing very Yeah, this sounds like way way above my pay grade. Oh no. I yeah. Can, <laughs> so who cares if you're not software developers? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Once upon a time I actually studied biomedicine and I took a course mm-hmm. in neuroscience. I dropped out, but I still got a got a pass somehow. Mm-hmm. Nice. There was yeah. a guy also called Kevin in, mm-hmm. in my oh. cohort or whatever. And I think I got the same the same grade as him. It was very mm-hmm. weird. So I, on paper, I can claim I know something about neuroscience, but mm-hmm. in reality, I don't. So, but yeah. So, Brittany, Anthony, what what do you guys know about neuroscience? Almost nothing. Yeah, let, let me summarize for you. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the presence of smart people, Kev. We're in the presence yeah. of smart. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet. So you do. Research on like how people communicate with each mm-hmm. other while mm-hmm. wa- like watching things. So tell me about that. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. So maybe to set the scene, it's helpful to sort of to describe sort of the context in which we're working. So typically, when we're doing sort of experimental neuroscience or psychology work, 
how we, the sort of predominant model is we bring people into like the lab, into a university setting. And most times they're sitting in front of a computer doing a computerized task. And that could be some sort of user input. We're asking to, to rate how they're feeling in response to something, making some sort of decisions. And the sort of uh, interface they're dealing with is built by a researcher according to some hypothesis they're testing with some questions and things like that. And then when we're sort of on the neuroscience side, we can take essentially that exact setup, but we're putting you inside of an MRI machine. And the MRI machine has a projector screen at the back of it that's hooked up just like a secondary display to a laptop. And you have these sort of retro MR compatible input devices that basically map onto a few keyboard inputs. And so you can essentially have people do the same kinds of inputs and, and decisions and tasks. But now we're collecting uh, brain activity, basically. Ooh. Yeah. That <laughs> so that's really the fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so to bring it to into what this podcast is about, which is yeah. software development using Svelte, how you use Svelte, I hear. <laughs> how do you use Svelte for this? Yeah. So it turns out that like there's a lot of, as you guys might imagine, a lot of software, particularly bespoke software for just generally building user interfaces. And so Scientists have also developed their own software for doing this using the tools we're used to. But I think a kind of cool thing over the past five, 10 years in research is that we can do so much more online in terms of both the kinds of inputs we can collect, the dynamic web applications that we can build for people. And so the web in that sense feels like more of a natural user interface. And at the same time, because we have access to the internet, we can start to do things like have people interact with each other over long distances. And that solves a sort of coordination problem for us in the laboratory where we have to bring people in and sort of set them up and set up local networks between computers, which is so much harder than like establishing a socket connection, it turns out. And so that's where sort of Svelte came into the picture, you know, sort of, hey, if we're taking this online, what's the best way to do that? And maybe I'll let Wasita talk about how she got into maybe web development, and then I can talk about how I discovered yeah. sort of uh, Svelte. Yeah. Oh, okay. Getting into web development. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay if you started on React. Oh, oh no, actually, <laughs> actually. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> we talked about it, so it. I have heard the whole spiel. Anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> How I got to web dev, though, was basically similar kind of things for Ashen. Like, it's a huge coordination problem. But even beyond that, with just, like, individual participants, an issue that my former lab was having, like, the lab I worked in before Dartmouth, was that we'd have multiple code bases that were doing the same thing. It's basically like the same experiment, but coded in different languages. Um, one could be in like JavaScript and another would be like in MATLAB or Python. And the difference there is like people would like pilot experiments online to collect a bunch of data. And then they would like, you know, once they're satisfied and think that the experiment is testing what they're actually testing for, all these things, they would then reprogram it in like MATLAB or Python so that they can run it with a uh, neuroimaging methods. And so basically got into web dev to kind of find that one code base solution. And I was fortunate to have worked with like research software engineers who used React, <laughs> but um, got to learn best practices and like got exposure to <laughs> web dev more fully and like learn how to use Git and workflows and like package things as an electron and things like that. So that's sort of how that worked. <laughs> it's great that you had that. Yeah, you had those people that sort of could guide you, given you want to get into it, you sort of had that people to guide you. That's really good. Yeah, no, I really liked it, actually. Like, like I have prior program experience. So like I 
knew kind of what to do once I had examples. And so I'd like look at what they were doing. And on top of that, code review, obviously super helpful. Like I would submit the PR and then he would review and be like, oh, this is like kind of clunky. Like think about it this way. And these people were like the research software engineers at the university were people coming from industry who kind of just like want to do something different. It was really interesting because they're kind of like working as consultants, like different labs could like buy portions of their time and like kind of contract them for certain projects. Oh, And yeah, so that Hmm. happens to be. Yeah. Because I mean, if I was if I was looking at this now and getting into web dev, I would not Mm -hmm. know where to start, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's it's really like a minefield, and it, right. I've seen people get into it and just not have that support, and they've just really built something that's kind of struggled, and they've kind of it's put them off. So it's mm-hmm. great that you've got that kind of support on hand. I hear from so I have friends who who are also PhD students, and they they work mm-hmm. more in the like bioinformatics field, and they work a lot with R. I think mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah. from them. I hear like it's way more chaotic than than what. <laughs> web developers usually do maybe that's that's a thing in in like research in general like it's mm-hmm. it's just like more chaotic than the industry because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i guess you mm-hmm. you have to try a lot of different things and i don't know it's it yeah. just seems like for me ooh, that would not be what i would want to <laughs> do but try different things as in like iteration and doing things differently or like she said that there are multiple code bases and that seems like duplication that's maybe unnecessary yeah I think that all of these, Both. yeah, yeah. It's, uh, this is actually a really fun topic. I have a lot of feelings about this, but... Yeah, let's hear them. <laughs> like, there are a very unique set of, let's call them design or engineering constraints, I think, in research, particularly at the smaller lab scales, like at psychology labs and, and neuroscience labs tend to... You know, there are big labs, but there are many more small labs. And so most people are not coming from a technical background. Most people have no idea what best practices are. Most people are sort of self-taught and like just to the point of getting the thing working, not to the point of mastering or these like long-term maintainability sort of constraints and things right. like that. Because mm-hmm. it's a tool yeah. to, to get to a result, right? It's or right. a visualization or whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting because I feel like from the self-learning standpoint, there aren't a lot of resources geared towards like that end goal. Often, like I found myself getting... I have that yak shaving tendency that I think I can sort of affiliate with a lot of sort of people in software development, but like best practices feel great, but sometimes in in these contexts, they slow you down or, you know, for example, I don't use TypeScript. I'm sorry, (laughs) but like... Makes total sense. Yeah, right. It's, It's not clear if your types are always changing or like if you have a data table and like you have to migrate the database or whatever const like these things are, you need something that's like very flexible and breakable and easy to sort of manipulate sometimes. And and once you've had a stack that's running for a while, then maybe you can port over to something more stable. But that's very interesting. Like, have you heard about like the way Svelte came to be? Yeah, this is exactly actually why mm-hmm. I discovered Svelte. Thank you for the segue. <laughs> but I have a not so secret crush on Rich Harris, like many of us do. But it was really seeing some of his talks around circa like 2017 and things like that. I was actually coming from a, an experiment using like Meteor JS, which mm-hmm. if folks are familiar with like that sort of full stack. And this is before they had any front end. So I think it was whatever their native templating language was before they had React integration. And, you know, the whole thing was cool to work with, but it was like frustratingly difficult to do things. And the other really hard cost was a social one where I just couldn't work with anybody else on this code base because like the startup cost for them to learn it was just so hard. Right. And so right. that I was like, I need, if I want to continue doing this, I need, I need something else. And so I 
as we do, fall down a YouTube rabbit hole and saw these talks by Rich Harris and him talking about how Svelte was sort of born in the sort of New York Times newsroom sort of environment where like you have different people with different sort of technical backgrounds and some people just want to make contact changes in these. And I was like, wow, this is almost exactly like the research development environment I was mentioning. And so then I sort of got obsessed and like that lovely interactive tutorial where you can just like play around and like, like package management and bundling is already a, a, a big startup cost for people getting into development. Right. And so just to oh, be yeah. like, I'm going to play in my browser for a bit as a, such a gentle entry point. So I think all of that was just so different than all of the other things I had played with Vue, I had played with React and things. And I think there's just the startup cost for people who don't have the ability or time to put in because their goals are different. Svelte just hits that mark in a way that I think other tools don't. Yeah. I think it's okay to have a crush on Rich Harris as well. I think, <laughs> like Daddy Harris, as we like to call him. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm cringing so hard now. Like a cult like Jesus <laughs> movement too. Yeah. Like, yeah. But he cut the long hair off. So he, he kind of looks like Pedro Pascal. <laughs> no, he doesn't. But, but is, don't people call him? No, let's not go there. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I love that, though. I completely agree with all of that. And that's one of the things that I've always loved about Svelte is kind of the simplicity. And there are so many technical things that you need to learn when you're first getting started, like Git mm -hmm. and NPM and mm -hmm. node modules, mm -hmm. all that mm -hmm. stuff. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just overhead that the Svelte mm -hmm. REPL kind of takes away and allows you to just get right in there. Exactly. Yeah. Super yeah. fun. I wonder, like, it's interesting to hear, like, we knew about the newsroom kind of dynamic and people that just want to get stuff done quickly. And then now we hear, I had no idea that the research, like, industry or whatever you want to call it, the research field, academia, I guess you would call mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. is kind of the same. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there are other places that are just like mm -hmm. that, that we haven't discovered yet, where we could mm -hmm. kind of push Svelte as a tool to to build, mm -hmm. build stuff. I'll have to think about that. That's really interesting. I feel like, yeah, as I'm the, sure there you know, the, I feel like the places to start looking are all the places where like the web is making, an, or web tooling is making an appearance that it didn't used to, right? I know some people are frustrated about that, but it's also kind of awesome. And so my guess is, you know, like I remember the story that Rich Harris talks about, I think it's somewhere in South America where they were running Svelte off of like the point of sale services on like the lowest budget yep. hardware. And it was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like that kind of thing, I think, is where I wonder people who are working in spaces that have to like, not typically use web technologies, you might need this different sort of design constraints going on. I think medical is a mm -hmm. field that could like mm -hmm. benefit. From yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. When I go to hospital, I see all the machines that like running iPads with an interface on that's clearly just a web interface, really. Yeah. yeah. What's really cool is there's a, a bunch of groups that are doing this thing called hyperscanning, where you're networking MRI machines across sites. And that's like real deal. Can we study brains that are interacting in real time? And so all of the same things that make timing and precision and synchronization mm. important, you know, now you're talking about heavy duty sort of machines that really, really need to have precise timing. And so it's, uh, that's a super fun engineering space for folks who are ever interested in a, in a career pivot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll need to read more about that. That sounds super interesting. So you have obviously used Svelte for something here. So what is it that you've actually built? Mm -hmm. what, what can tell us more? Yeah. So there's two sort of, I think, things that we've been doing. So one is we've been uh, trying to build, I guess, like a Svelte starter pack for basic experiments. And that templating is sort of just set up. So again, people can come into a lab setting with some limited web development experience, a little bit of Svelte, and then sort of get going quickly. And it's because there's sort of 
let's call them a different set of like primitives in experimental design. And so, for example, we'll bootstrap a, a single page Svelte app. So we're not using Svelte Kit here, but that's perfectly good for our needs. And a very useful sort of tooling to hook that up to is any kind of serverless database like Firebase or Supabase. And what's really cool about that setup for us is that we can essentially do the thing that you would not ever want to scale up to like lots and lots of users, but we can just like completely map the uh, database uh, reactivity subscription to some aspects of the experiment, right? So at any given time, you know, when people are making decisions, like the experiment state is always saved and being updated in real time. And then that allows us to do things like if something goes wrong, we can like move people into a different part of the experiment by changing a field in Firebase or something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, right. And, and we can also do things now to make synchronization easy, which is like you and I can subscribe to the same document and then suddenly we have joint state, yeah, UI state, right? And so we can basically do fun things where people can have real-time interactions and it's all fluid and it's quite simple to understand and it like makes sense very, very easily. And so we've done this for like two-person experiments and uh, we see this working on a sort of larger one where people are doing more of a, a Netflix party style thing. And so that's using more of a full stack sort of setup with socket connections, but I'll let her talk about that a bit. Yeah. If you've used Netflix or party or Netflix party or teleparty, I've basically turned that into an experiment. So it's just like a multi-user synchronized video watching platform. And I just like have uh, users be synchronized in player state as well as the experiment state. And we can administer experiment to hundreds of groups of uh, four people simultaneously. I haven't done any like formal load testing yet, but as Ashen said, it is kind of like a full stack setup where I have a node server and that's like the central controller. I have that running um, socket IO and that's how I'm doing like, you know, client to server connections and like having the server be the central controller for like what to synchronize, like who's going to be in this group, who's going to be in this state of the experiment, that sort of thing, kind of all that. And I also have like, shared playback via socket connection, but still leveraging the Svelte UI. And so I found Svelte really helpful and useful for like its reactivity for synchronizing the player state and like getting the shared playback to work, which is really cool. You want to tell them a little bit more about that, the experiment, which is actually kind of a fun oh, yeah. and like what people are doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it is like Netflix party where they are literally watching a TV show together. Specifically, I have people watch Love is Blind. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's just like a, you know, trashy reality TV show. But I chose that so that people are more kind of inclined to talk together. And it's like a very like low effort context to be put in to like generate discussion and like share your opinions. And something we're interested in is actually like, what are the things that like people focus on and like build impressions of when they're like interacting with other people? In this case, we're not necessarily interacting with the people like they're observing, but they're also kind of observing them within a group of people. So I have people <laughs> be in groups of four and it's really just like a chat room while they're watching the show together and they're all talking being like, oh my God, I can't believe these people are going to be like married after two weeks or oh, I can't believe this guy just said that. And they're like, oh yeah, that was so like rude of him, whatever. 
don't know what I'm allowed to say for words, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I was going <laughs> to But um, <laughs> participants were wasting our tears, which is yeah, saying. yeah, <laughs> yeah. For context so, too, like this show will like have them blindfolded sometimes, like on blind dates, but then they're like sometimes in masks, like weird wolf masks. I haven't oh seen yeah, the actual show, one. but I've seen clips where uh-huh. they're wearing like weird masks. It's super weird. <laughs> yeah. This would be like a guilty pleasure for me to watch. Mm-hmm. I, I think I would enjoy this. <laughs> have you, has anyone here seen in the UK, we have a show called Naked Attraction? No. We, we have that here in Sweden as well. Oh, you do? Really? I bet it's probably normal yeah. in Sweden, to be fair. It's Europe, you know. But, um, <laughs> what happens is they reveal the contestants and, and you, you analyze whether you want to date them or not from the bottom up and they're completely naked. So you start oh with their feet, God. their knees, and then you go uh-huh. up from there, right? It's very, very strange. And I would love to see people's huh. brain activity huh. whilst watching that. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so that's that's kind of interesting. So there these groups of four, they're chatting together, they're talking. So what what do you do with this information? Like do mm-hmm. you do you collect it all in like a database and then mm-hmm. or do you like how do you connect that to like the brain? Mm-hmm. If that, I don't know ah. if that makes sense, the question. So we haven't connected to the brain yet per se. Right now, this is all like behavioral, like online experiments. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, but yeah. The, I mean, the typical mm-hmm. flow, I think, like when you're grabbing this, is like you'll pull this stuff from a database, and then usually we're going to move over to like a Python scientific mm-hmm. data analysis stack. And so, yeah, we see just been analyzing some of the conversations or like things like the rate and message, like frequency at which people are like spamming uh, each other yeah. messages, or you know, there's all kinds of interesting mm-hmm. behavioral patterns you can you can pull out. I don't know if there's anything you want to highlight that you've been sort of playing with the data this is all like super yeah i'm still actively fresh so (laughs) very much much work in progress (laughs) but yeah it's kind of like i'd be interested to like because i can imagine there are like so many like emergent behaviors Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like things that you wouldn't expect that just shows up sometimes like Mm -hmm. why why are they talking about this now and Mm -hmm. do you think there's excuse a data anyway that because they know they're being monitored is there a way of doing it where they don't know they're being monitored Mm. yeah this is a tricky so in psychology we've we've talked about this a lot too there's this sort of like demand characteristic idea which is like oftentimes if we're not online we're recruiting university subjects who are taking psychology classes and so like they're gonna know and maybe they're just feeding the answers and so it's a tricky problem i I'm hoping that the one thing the web stuff brings is that we're used to chatting on so many mediums anyway. And like, as sad as it is, like, I think we're used to being monitored and maybe that's just becoming less of an issue than it used to be. I hate that I have to say that because I hate that it's true, but it's, mm-hmm. I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. it is um, true. And so I should add one thing that we do differently than typical industry A-B testing style approaches is that everybody provides informed consent to everything that we do. And all of our participants are are compensated for their time with some sort of financial payment and things like that. So it's all of a voluntary basis type of a thing. So, And we have ethics review boards that have to approve all of these procedures and things. You pay people to watch Netflix because I'm, I'm oh, like, yeah. Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And if you get yeah. scanned while you're doing it, we pay you pretty well too. <laughs> oh, my, this is great. Okay, <laughs> I wonder Where do that, I about the MRI. <laughs> the uh, MRI piece too, where you have mm. the MRI hooked up and they're in there. Like mm-hmm. I would imagine your brain activity inside of an MRI watching something would be very different than just relaxing on your couch watching. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I wonder how that affects things. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it's funny for a long time in the history of neuroscience, we didn't used to use movies and these sort of rich, more intention engaging things. It was really boring. 
And it, you know, it's sort of like these really old school static images of things. And so mm. I know when I'm in that situation, I just fall asleep <laughs> in the scanner. It's, yeah. it's a very rhythmic sound. It's kind of cozy if you're not claustrophobic. But I think some of the richer movies and sounds and sort of like uh, people have done things like have people listen to podcasts now in the scanner and things like that, where we're interested in emotional engagement and these longer narratives that you're listening to and what's happening. There is a sense in which after a couple of minutes, if it's engaging enough, you kind of just you're in there and you're lying down and now you're, you're just enjoying the thing. And so I think when we use more of these, what we call naturalistic stimuli in these experimental settings, hopefully that bridges the gap between just sitting on your couch and, and being in an awkward metal tube. <laughs> <laughs> so I, let's talk a bit about what's the experience of, of using, using Svelte and, mm -hmm. and like compared to what you've done, let's see if I, I can phrase this correctly. Like, what you've done before, like when you design experiments before the web and what does using the web and Svelte, maybe more in general, the web, what does that unlock for you? I mean, we're talking about chatting simultaneously with each other as being one, but what other kinds of things can we kind of use the web for here? Before we continue with the episode, here's a word from our sponsor, Vercel. Vercel is the platform for front-end developers, providing the speed and reliability innovators need to create at the moment of inspiration. Founded by the creators of Next.js, Vercel has zero configuration support for 35-plus front-end frameworks, including SvelteKit. We enable the world's largest brands like Under Armour, eBay, and Nintendo to iterate faster and create quality software. Try out Vercel today to experience the easiest way to use Svelte. Yeah, so I, I think, again, I think I come back to this idea of like, just as being a good UI framework, the idea of like components and having sort of state and the way that these things sort of interact with each other is a very different sort of mental model to how we build user interfaces using classic sort of software stacks in research. You'd be surprised, but it's like, it's very synchronous. There's sort of just like you know, a classic sort of double buffered frame flipper that's happening and it's drawing things to a screen and you have to like really, really write low level things on like how to get the text in exactly the right position and calculate the bounding box. And here it's just like flexbox, div, boom, you know, like that kind of thing. So right. just that, I think you're operating at, at the sort of what I'd like to call the right level of abstraction for what you're building. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like dive into these lower level details. Like I don't want to have to do a lot of mental math when I'm just trying to lay things out. And, you know, but I want to have that accessible to me if I want to more precisely position things and stuff. And so I think just the web in general but it's a very natural interface and it's constantly evolving and getting better. And the sort of browserfication of everything means like your, the skills you're learning are very transferable to things. So Wasita mentioned like now you can build desktop applications, you know, and hook them up to hardware and like ship that to a lab that is using specialized equipment or something because you can wrap it in an electron. And so that I think already solves like a lot of these problems and doesn't require so much bespoke software. So I think that that's a, a big, big draw for, for web tech. So it sounds, so to summarize, maybe like a speed up in production of these tools that you might mm -hmm. use mm -hmm. in research then. Oh, that's cool. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And reusable, right? Like I think it's so much easier. I think Brittany was talking about a component she's working on, right? Like if I made a really nice like data collection right. component rating scale, just use it, you know? And like, so I think there's also a movement called open science where people are much more sort of like wanting to share their code, both to reproduce things, because it's that is should be the sort of de facto part of science, but like also to speed these kinds of things up, right? Bootstrapping. And so it's like, hey, I can build a user interface, hand it over to Wasita, and she can start designing a whole new experiment to study something different with it, right? And that's that's super cool. 
you need a design system for your research. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so, what I so do. You, <laughs> you mentioned like a starter template kind of thing for yep. research. Then, So describe that. Is that where you would put like these common components and Yeah, totally. Like yeah. So right now I we've been sort of, we have one in the lab that we've been playing around with. So all it does is it sort of just like, takes the the sort of Vite Svelte uh, starter and just adds a couple more things. So we bake in Tailwind, that because sort of like that, and uh, Firebase also. And then one thing it does, it sort of like sets up a, a kind of modified Svelte store that's hooked up to a Firebase subscription. And so what ends up happening is when you boot up the app at the time, the the sort of parent most component, I sort of think of it as like, a, it operates like a finite state machine. So it essentially, it's like, given some field that is set to some value in Firebase, like this is what should be rendered. As soon as that changes, yeah, because the Svelte store is subscribed live, right? The user just has to update the value in the Svelte store. It'll automatically do it to Firebase. That'll do that and then the UI will update. So it's a very fluid process that way. And so that thing is set up for you along with some sort of basic pages that we have in all of our experiments. So like a consent page and a sort of demographic survey at the end and things like that. And so that also has a slot for different UI components we're talking about, where we're still sort of uh, figuring that part out. But at least the sort of starter can help you get going with with pretty basic things. Cool. So so what's hard with using Svelte? <laughs> what's hard? Hmm. They're having to think hard about that. That is a good yeah. thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I guess... Sometimes it's not obvious to me, like when things get very complex, like the best practice for how to scale things. So for example, without jumping to something like SvelteKit, right? In the same, when you're still in the SPA land. And so I end up, I don't know if it's a good practice, end up doing things where we just have tons of Svelte stores so we don't have to worry about where the data is throughout the hierarchy of components. But it feels more intuitive when you're first getting started with a smaller scale thing to just have this sort of, the child shouts at the parent with some data and then the parent sends a prop back kind of, and so I think that that shift can be a little bit of a leap depending on how complex the experiment gets sometimes. And so that's sort of like the flexibility ends up can, uh, forcing you to have to make a, a decision sometimes. And it's not clear what the right one is. Right. Interesting. You, you talk about leaping, leaping to SvelteKit. I guess what's the, <laughs> what's the reason for not using SvelteKit? Because this is interesting. Honestly, because we can get by without it right now. I think when you're in... So I played with Sapper for a few pro- pro- uh, projects before SvelteKit. And I think... It was too early days, and I, I felt a little burned by this sort of development cycle. I think that's sort of a natural thing. But also, I think the more we can get away with being in sort of serverless land for a lot of what we're doing, then the overhead costs technical-wise for people getting into it is a little bit lower. For the more complicated things that like Wasita is doing, where we need a, a proper backend and things like that, then I think maybe SvelteKit ends up being a more a natural choice. But I think it, it's just, it scales with the complexity of the, the project. And so far, we've been able to eke out as much as we can with with Svelte uh, and just the single page work. This is my little personal psych experiment here because basically what I'm doing is I'm trying to understand, like mm. one of our goals Svelte-wise is, is to make Svelte get the jump off point for any Svelte project of any type. And mm-hmm. so I kind of collect from people the resistance to using SvelteKit for just everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I would like to think that SvelteKit can pump out a serverless UI just mm-hmm. using the static adapter, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting to collect these data points because I can then go, well, it's not obvious to people that maybe this is this is a good use case for SvelteKit because we're not marketing it correctly, we're not writing about it correctly, mm, documenting mm. it or something. So, so it's good to know. Actually, mm-hmm. it's an interesting one, and I agree. Like, for example, the I talk about raw Svelte has esoteric use cases, 
Perhaps mm-hmm. this is one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Stone payments is another good one. You wouldn't use Svelte mm-hmm. Kit for that, but you, right. you maybe would use just Svelte on its own and, and produce a UI, a compiled HTML yeah. file or whatever. So yeah, good to know. It's not a multi-page app, so you don't need a router. So you're, it's a little more overhead than you really need. Yeah. You need, a, you need an SPA router there, right? You need an SPA router on the, on the client. You, or we can roll our own with this sort of like Firebase-driven mm-hmm. state machine, essentially. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah, okay. yep, yeah. Have you guys seen the, there's a Svelte finite state machine package out there that's pretty good. Yeah. Maybe you're yeah, yeah, already yeah. using that. Yeah, I came, I remember coming across that. And I was like, oh man, why did I, why did I write this? I should have used this instead. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, very cool project. I will say one thing, and maybe this is a little controversial, but I do feel, because I, I feel like I've, I got into Svelte circa the, when Rich Harris was like sort of coming up. And so like seeing the Svelte, the Sapper to Svelte kit, I do feel like it's, the ease at which it was to get into Svelte was easier before than maybe it is now with Svelte kits. And that's just because if I tell someone like, we see hey, look up Svelte, like naturally the first thing that surfaces these days is Svelte kit. And so you have to learn more to get started. And I think that is a new challenge that didn't exist before. And that was something that was very, very appealing about just Svelte as, as itself, I think. I agree, actually. Yeah. If I, if I read the Svelte kit doc, sometimes I find myself slightly overwhelmed sometimes about you know all the stuff and everything's expressed as typescript types and i, I don't know typescript at all mm-hmm. and so it's not easy for me to look at those and understand what things are i, I would have preferred them to be documented and some of the reasons but yeah i think mm-hmm. i think i wholeheartedly agree with you there that if you look at svelte kit now it's it's almost aimed at somebody who's already built web applications and wants to move mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. svelte was built from somebody who has no like mm-hmm. starting from scratch yep. and just wants to build yep. a ui yeah yeah exactly it's too bad that we're we're kind of losing that in a sense because I remember also when I got into Svelte, like, so I used to work with React and I, I just tried Svelte and it was so easy, especially like the, especially the, the tutorial or the REPL and mm-hmm. the fact that you, like you mentioned earlier, like you can just like send someone to the webpage and they can just play around with it. And that's, that's great. Now we're, we're kind of moving into this, this era of, of kind of wanting to support Svelte kit as well in the REPL, mm-hmm. which I think. Honestly, it probably complicates things a lot for those that just want to try Svelte out. I think like if you're they just... should stay separate. Like the Svelte REPL should be just Svelte and then learn.svelte.dev is the web container. Mm-hmm. Right. But the REPL, like sometimes you might want to try something out with Svelte Kit online. And Maybe that's there's what... a toggle. <laughs> well, so <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. All of this. There's the Svelte into... Lab one. Yeah. All of this ties back into what I was saying about we envisage, because it's simpler for, for everyone really to have a single path in, SvelteKit being that path in. And if you, if you have this use case where you really just need to use the raw thing by itself, that would be where you would find Svelte, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, I, obviously, there's this, this caveated by we should have our initial hit on the Svelte site to just be, here's a UI language that we've built. Here's a UX language or whatever. Like Here's, here's how you can mock up something usable by a human without getting into the details of serverless or loading data and all loading, of this yeah, stuff. All this, yeah, yeah, and shadow endpoints and, and whatever else. Because you will use those when you find a need to use those, but you don't need them when you're just going, right, well, I want to build a website. I was just going to say, like, I feel like that for me was the thing that resonated with the original spirit of like the OG Rich Harris sort of thing, where it's just like, the magic and then just as much complexity as you need, but you don't need to add more unless you, you know, you can just 
write a dot file and it's just it looks like a regular html with css and stuff right yeah. and like that's awesome because then you could sprinkle in a tiny bit as you need and i think that just enough complexity idea was a very attractive yeah i think so we mm-hmm. we moved away from the sapper era where we used to do the data loading inside of of the page components right so we're we've moved away from that i think that's mm-hmm. a positive like mm-hmm. separating the data and the actual visual stuff i think that makes sense in my head Maybe maybe it would make sense to have like a... So at the moment when you're bootstrapping a Svelkit project, you get a couple of different options. You get the sample app and you get the skeleton app and you get a package one. Maybe it makes sense to have like multiple there, like maybe a data viz one. Maybe that would make sense. Where you get like a super simple data viz component. Oh, just do whatever you want with this and then hit the build button and you get your data viz thing. Or I don't know something like that because that would lower the barrier again right yeah that's a really cool so there's a there's this similar project called cookie cutter in the data science community where essentially it it's exactly what you're describing there's people can submit community templates that bootstrap like essentially a big python library kind of thing for the most common types of patterns that you would encounter in data analysis and so that would be that's a really interesting idea like if you had a svelte kit set of templates for use cases that are you know, maybe some are niche or something, but then that's cool because you're essentially growing the community the more niche those templates are almost, right? And so, yep. yeah, that's, I like that idea. Yeah, maybe we'll, we'll try to push for that, try to convince, <laughs> I was yeah. going to say. Happy to contribute yeah. too on the scientific research side of things. <laughs> Great, yeah. I've seen other like research. So here in Stockholm, we have, have a big university and there's a guy that called Matthias Stahl. He's a German guy that used to do bioinformatics and stuff. And he he used Svelte in their research somehow, mostly for data viz stuff. He's now at, at like a newspaper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's interesting that it's kind of, you see it in multiple locations in research or academia popping up. I'd love to hear more from people that use it. I'm sure you're not the only ones, right? There are probably other people using Svelte. I did find that guy uh, that you're talking about, Kev, on Twitter. because You he was found following- that guy? <laughs> yeah, he was trolling one of his, like his his students or something. Him and his student have this massive like face off about stuff, and it's great. So I just kind of joined in. Really? Yeah. And academics sure on Twitter. About this? I'm pretty sure because he's called Doctor Matthias Stahl. Oh, yeah, that's him. I'm pretty sure that's it's him. him. <laughs> they're, they're quite funny. They're quite funny as well. Yeah, yeah, academia. Yeah. <laughs> Seems spicy. My my girlfriend is doing a PhD as well, and I hear all Good sorts luck. of fun stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> academic policy, Twitter in particular. Yeah, mm-hmm. although there's been a a bit of an exodus since uh, someone took over. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. He who shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Voldemort, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, it's not that bad, I guess. But I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So you've used you've used Svelte for this chat kind of application? Are you planning to use it for more stuff? Like, tell us what what are your secret plans? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we have a couple of other types of experiments we've been doing. I think one is there's a sort of field of research called behavioral economics, where we're interested in, in sort of how people make decisions about things. And so there's a sort of psychological aspect our lab has been working on, sort of motivated by the how our emotions also play a part in how we make decisions. And so what we can do is we can adapt classic behavioral economic games. Maybe you've heard of things like the prisoner's dilemma or the dictator game or the ultimatum game. These are games where people are usually 
endowed with some amount of money by a researcher, and then they're deciding how much to share, and the other person can reciprocate this sort of general flavor. And what we can do is we can also sort of like ask people how they're feeling while they're making those decisions. And one thing we do is we actually capture facial expressions in the lab setting, and that's something we're hoping to maybe move online. And so what's really cool is we can try to extract information or get fancy with some machine learning and build models of how you're sort of emoting about your feelings when you're making these decisions to try to like get some insight into like what kinds of things you're considering when you're making decisions that affect other people. And so we've built like prototype games of trust where people are sort of making these kinds of investment decisions that very simple, built and svelte. And we're sort of scaling that up to see how we can add more components to collect different kinds of data uh, of this nature. So more like video and audio and those kinds of things. Yeah, that makes sense to use the web for as well. You just like have to like add the the camera feed and then record it. So easy. <laughs> yeah. You can't imagine how difficult that used to be like 10 years ago using bespoke research software where you're like loading the camera frames into memory and then trying to like figure out how, yeah, it was just wild right it was and then your fans are going crazy yeah yeah for somebody who's not a dev that's pretty much a blocker right now <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah and it's that's that's also kind of like speaking of ai it's what everyone's talking about now i guess but like it kind of opens up the i think the ability for even more people to get into web development and just get over these like humps that are all this syntax and this stuff that you have to learn to, to actually build stuff. It's very exciting. It's going to be great to see more people get into the field. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of that, I think one other talking point from the academic side is that I think academia is a difficult career path, right? And so most people who enter it don't end up staying in academia. There's just not enough jobs. And so there's something to be said about having learnable, transferable, useful skills. And web dev is something you can teach yourself. And it's something that there's going to be a market for, hopefully, if we're not all replaced by AI. But you know, under that assumption not coming true, <laughs> someone will still have to build the UIs to make the AIs, you know, fun to interact with. And so I think <laughs> for academics, leveraging the new technology opens up new opportunities research-wise, but it also gives you this bag of skills that makes you competitive in other markets and not feeling trapped that you don't have other opportunities when, when you can't get into other research jobs, right? That's a very good point. Yeah. All right. And any other fun topics that you want to talk about? And with regards to Svelte or like the research that you're doing? That's... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think feel free to sort of look us up or, or our lab and things like that. We share a lot of our code on GitHub. Also, if there's, I think one thing that I would maybe sort of, we see to mention benefiting from sort of research software engineers. And, you know, one thing I, I would love to see is I think there's a lot of people like you guys who have interests beyond web development and are curious about things. And so it, it would be cool if there's interesting opportunities for people that have web development skills that want to learn a little bit more about research or something to develop these contract opportunities or, or some sort of interfacing where research labs can work with software developers. And then the software developers get something in return on the education side. I, I'd love to see some of that happen uh, more and you know whatever ways that we can make those things happen by having those communities sort of talk more and things. That would be super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could start like a small community for like researchers in Svelte or I don't know, that, that could be fun or Svelte developers for research. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of that would be Lots of ways fun. to explore. Yeah. All right. Brittany, Anthony, any other questions before we move on to the spicy sections? Probably like a million questions, but... <laughs> yeah, time is limited. <laughs> All right. So unpopular opinions. This is the part of the show where we say something spicy and everyone hates us. 
or controversial, or we don't say anything at all. I don't have any unpopular opinions today, so I'm going to hand it over to wh- whoever wrote clickbait Twitter. Oh, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something that's been really frustrating lately is that there will be like a hot take or something that just kind of catches. And then every popular Twitter account will just kind of post some variation of it as clickbait. And it's people need to stop interacting with it to like stop. So that's maybe the unpopular side of it. Like people are still interacting with them, which is making but it's it so like baity. I like just don't fall for the bait. So like that, I don't think it's fair to post about your, to talk about your co-hosts on the podcast, right? Because I'm literally like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> are you talking about You me, are Anthony? not the worst. No, <laughs> Anthony does this sometimes, but he is not the worst. I recently, so I run our YouTube channel. I don't know if you've seen it, but I've recently started the, doing these like YouTube shorts things. And it's, it's so clickbaity and you have to like make it the attention span of people. It's so low. You have to like, I feel so dirty doing it. Like really, I'm really kind filthy. Of okay <laughs> with that because that is actually getting people that have like ADHD or short attention spans. It's giving them kind of an end to spell and they are clickbaity and they are like, but they're on a different platform, even though you share them on Twitter. I'm talking about like those topics like Tailwind is not CSS or like just those things that are like hot takes. And then they go on for weeks because people just keep like saying the same thing in a little different version and people keep arguing about it. We need to talk about blah, blah, blah. Follow down below. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and don't forget that ass red little cotton. Yes. <laughs> I did a thread recently about non-JavaScript users and progressive enhancement. Threads are even dying because of like the extended tweet count for blue people too. Like it's just all T shall not for be blue named. people. Blue people. Blue check marks. <laughs> it's Twitter blue is what it's called. Blue people. I know. <laughs> Reminds me of that TV show Arrested Development. The guy. Oh yeah, blue man. Us up in. Yeah. <laughs> so good <laughs> all right yeah okay anthony i suppose this this next one is yours the it is mine yes you could actually i was thinking like now based on that that thing you could rant about blue people ultimately like <laughs> getting only the opinions that you're paying that people who pay for twitter are giving right so you're getting no free opinions you're getting no new users because no yeah. new users going to pay mm. for it straight away it's mm. ridiculous I mean, I'm I'm paying for two Twitter Blue accounts. Oh no, mm. Kevy, one of them. <laughs> I am. You're a blue person. He's a blue person. He's a double blue. He's like I don't know, purple, blue um, squared, blue squared. <laughs> purple. I don't know. Like, you can't double a color, but just just double the like the nanometer length of the light wave or something. Oh yeah, that makes oh, sense, yeah. right? Is it darker? So you end up being red or something. Oh, exactly, right? Red people. That's right. Blue plus blue is red. I can confirm. We're going to reach a... Yeah. The smart person has told us how to... <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> yeah, we're going re- to reach a point where we say something we regret, so let's stop there. <laughs> so, my controversial opinion is... I've just written helium because... So this, <laughs> in, in the vein of controversial opinions, this one is also kind of weird because I need to know if I should be angry about it or not. So if people can tell me that's great. So I understand that MRI machines rely heavily on helium. And I also am aware that helium is a limited resource and we mm-hmm. waste a lot of it for those balloons that float 
float themselves, you know, the healing balloons, mm. uh, and just breathing it in and speaking in a funny way, right? And I feel that's wasteful, but I do, I am aware that someone was saying that it's a different grade of helium that can't be used for MRIs anyway. So it's not that bad. So I need to know, first of all, maybe people here know, but maybe they don't. Should I be angry about helium balloons? And, and, if, and if I should, then let me know. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> basically it. <laughs> yes, if we're wasting a natural resource. But a limited natural resource, right? That is, yeah, that is then yes. Running out. Be angry. <laughs> then I should be angry, but I'm not ready to get angry unless I know that we are doing that. Anthony, I I think you shouldn't be angry about this because I see you being angry about car people on on Twitter. Yes. All all the time. I feel like your your blood pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm arguing with the mayor of Soho about line bikes right now. It's it's great fun. It's great fun. (laughs) Like it's it's, so Uh, yeah, like, like the, the, in New York or in no, no, the London, London. Soho. London okay. Soho. So the mayor is anti-line bike. He's having a big campaign against them. They, they get in the way. Mm. They're bad for disabled people, which I totally agree sounds with. like a mayor for me. <laughs> well, yeah, but I say turn the screws on Lyme. Tell them to find people more. Right, not don't just remove active transport that are really convenient. I use a line bike every day to get to nursery. Right now, I damaged my foot, so I can't walk so well. So I I now get a line bike there and then push her back walking. And it's, it's invaluable. It's great, right? I can't take my bike there because I'll lock it up and get nicked. So it's, I don't want them to go away. I think there's levels of what you can do about a problem to solve it rather than just go scrap the whole scheme and ban them. Anyway, that's a different rant. I have to get angry about things sometimes. <laughs> Two unpopular opinions. Two, three, because I'll Twitter blue as well, right? But <laughs> the thing is, the thing, I thought I had none for this episode. I thought I had no opinions, but I have lots. And no, you but the, have found the thing for me is the helium thing. I see these balloons being sold in supermarkets and, and flying in the street. And I'm like, if that's wasting a resource that's vital to medical, for medical needs, then I'm angry about it, right? Really yeah, bad. be angry at the, at the balloon people, not the MRI people. I hate helium <laughs> balloons. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about blue people. Now we're talking about balloon people. Yeah, right. blue, balloons, blue, blue people. <laughs> okay, so... Eshin, Wasita, mm-hmm. do, you, do you guys have any unpopular opinions? I don't, know if I have I don't have one. I'm one gonna, I'm gonna pass. So. Do you have one? pass to you. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm just I'm gonna be a little lame and, and sort of just double down on on some of the stuff I was saying earlier. But I think my hot take about like there's like a proper way to learn software development, and I think like this proliferation of like tutorials that are a particular style that are geared in a certain way. When it's like the first project you're doing is not google scale so you like you just don't need to worry about certain things and i think there would be a better accessibility point for a lot of people if we just had just more open-ended things that were not geared towards emulating what the like most successful software i think that's a good one because like as software engineers and developers we tend to get down into the nitty-gritty and we're like arguing about oh this database over this database like who cares if it works it works at like the scale that we're talking about right I'm sure if you're Netflix, you need some absolutely amazing thing, but... Yeah, I think it's a fallacy of judgment, though. You think, you know, you want to emulate the most successful people, right? But, like, the needs of the... Or, you know, or the most successful organizations, but, like, the needs that they have are not the same needs that you have, right? They're not trying to do, you know... And so I think sometimes you can dig yourself into a hole by trying to emulate too hard. Yep. All right. So that's unpopular opinions and... Let's head on into the picks section. So I can go first. 
I've recently started doing cold plunges. I don't know if you've heard about cold plunges, but it's basically you jump in a cold bathtub or go on in a shower that's super cold. And so I've been doing that the in the morning every day for like four days now. And I'm it's absolutely amazing. Like I'm sure it's placebo, but I feel so happy after getting out of that water. And it's just like it makes your day so much nicer. I'm I'm just beaming all the time. It would have the opposite effect on yeah. me. <laughs> I want to go in my hot tub like every <laughs> so, morning so, and get really so, warm. So basically my my routine is I wake up. I start filling the bathtub with cold water. I go make some tea and then I hop in the water for like three minutes or something. And then I. So it's not the ice bath. It's just cold water. Yeah. I mean, I don't have ice in It's Sweden. It's like an ice bath, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we actually had snow last week. It is terrible. The reason, Kev, that you feel happy getting out of the cold bath is because it's cold, Kev. That makes you happy. I, so, I, yeah, but it's actually interesting because I assume you guys have some knowledge of the brain. So, from what I understand, it's like you get a lot of re- releases of like dopamine and adrenaline and stuff. I way above my pay grade. It's just I just feel good. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a shock good. to your it's a shock to your system one way or another, right? And so, yeah, and it's it's also the fact that like it's not just after. I get out that I feel so good. It's also like, I feel good like six hours later, which is just like great. But we'll see. It might be placebo. So, (laughs) all right. Any other picks? I mean, I I just want to double your pick, I think, because I I also, I don't have a, I don't have a nice path. Well, so so your pick pick is a great pick, right? Because the only time I've ever had that dive into ice is, in like a, a spa in, in Bulgaria, Bulgaria, no, in Hungary. There's an amazing spa and they've got these jacuzzis around the outside of it where each one is 10 degrees hotter than the last one. And so what I started doing is going from the coldest one, well, the, it was still like 60 degrees or whatever. I don't know what it was, but it was, it was hot. Um, going up to each one of them and then eventually you go around the corner and jump in this pool and the pool is just full of ice cubes and it's got like water and ice. And they say it's bad because it's like a real shock to your system. But the feeling was amazing. Like it's so nice and you can swim around in this pool of ice for ages and it's really nice. Really nice I feeling. will say that I like doing that. Maybe not ice water, but when my hot tub is really hot and then the pool is like cool, mm. like 70, yeah. 60 degrees. I don't know. It's so what, what nice. kind of scale are we talking about here? Celsius, Fahrenheit? I, that's I, never Fahrenheit. Oh, you don't, I don't know. Like, yeah. I was going to say 60, 70, but it doesn't make sense. No, it's, it's hotter and hotter. I don't know. What is 60 in Celsius? <laughs> I always it's have very it. hot for... <laughs> You'd always boil. It's it's not that hot, but it's it's there's some degree where in this place it was getting hotter and hotter in each one, and it was just a great because it was nice because you get used to the heat and then you like get even hotter and even hotter and even 15. hotter. Fifteen. Fifteen. Fifteen is Fifteen Celsius. Oh, that's super cold. Has yeah, to be Celsius so, then. Oh, fine. yeah, Celsius. Celsius. Sixty Fahrenheit is like what I would go in in the water. That's what Lake Michigan is pretty much all the time. Yeah, so it, it would have been like hot tub warm and then warmer and warmer and warmer. And they had the same thing with nice. a steam room. They had a steam room that was like all connected corridors. And as you go through the corridors, it gets more and more steamy and the steam's warmer and stuff. It's really cool. I stayed at an Airbnb once that had an outdoor hot tub, but it was like on the coast of Oregon and it was like cold until there's like ice rain falling, which you're in a hot tub. 
super oh, cool that's the best. contrast. That's oh, nice. Yes. Oh, I yeah. like going in the hot tub when there's precipitation of any. I, I, I didn't think I liked it either, but it was an awesome. It was that's the coziest oh. thing ever. Mm. Oh. It was weird. Yeah, I don't like it hitting my head. Just dive. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird in the hot tub. <laughs> so that's yeah, why it's true. <laughs> that's why my pick is your pick, because it's a good pick. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Who wants to go next? I have an indoor pick because uh, so I've been rewatching the too soon canceled show Raised by Wolves. If anyone hasn't seen that. It got canceled? After two seasons. No. Uh, I know. It's heartbreaking. Highly, highly recommend. If you're into sci-fi, it's very cool, very like plays with a lot of fun ideas, but it just has sort of like a slow burn feel and the aesthetics are great. I think Ridley Scott was one of the producers on it and things, but super, super good show. Yeah. Yeah. If I had another pick, I would pick that as well. It's a really good show. Yeah. (laughs) You can have up to three picks. It's kind of creepy as well. Like it's so good. Uh, It's been so long since I, like a sci-fi show, I feel like has really got me in that way. Yeah. It's very cool. Highly oh, interesting. I'll have to check that one out. And now that you said a TV show, we did just finish watching the second season of Shadow and Bone. Mm. Oh. It was really good. The last episode kind of irritated me with the pacing of how they set it all up, but that's pretty good. Shadow and Bone? Shadow and Bone. And Bone. Is that your pick? It, yeah, it's a book series. I tried reading the books. I don't think this is the one instance where I might say that the show is better than the books. The pacing in the books is weird also so it's pretty good it's my, my pick is sticking the the brain monitoring pads on these two whilst they're watching these shows <laughs> <laughs> um we we'll can make that happen you can we'll come see. visit <laughs> <laughs> i guess it's in line of how we actually we're really into watching shows because we also use them as stimuli and so my pick is going to be this new show on netflix called beef um, it stars Ali Wong, who I don't know if you know, she's like a famous comedian. And it's just about like two people who get into like a road raid incident together and their lives are just like very deeply intertwined mm-hmm. thereafter. It's like just like a comedy drama. It's just really entertaining. I'll have to check that out. I'm right. I think, I think I've pretty... seen the trailer. Yeah. I think I've seen the trailer. All right. Well, that's all our picks. That's all our unpopular opinions. And yeah, I think that's it for this week. Yeah. Thanks for joining us again. Again, thanks for joining us, Wasita Eshin. Where can people find you online? What's Are you on Twitter? Yeah, on Twitter at E-S-H-J-O-L-L-Y. You could look at our lab is CosanLab, mm-hmm. C-O-S-A-N-L-A-B.com. And then if you Google us and things like that, you, you should be able to find our, our work. All right. Cool, cool. Wasita, oh, are you I mean, also the same on thing. We're all just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool, cool. Are you a blue person <laughs> on Twitter? That's the question. Like what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. All right. So thanks for joining us. It was super interesting. Uh, not something I ever thought I would talk about. It's felt radio, which is it makes it even more fun. So yeah. Thanks for, for joining us. And for everyone that's listening. Absolutely. And for everyone that's listening, we'll see you or talk to you next week. I don't know. Uh, bye. hey it's kevir if you like the show please drop a review on your favorite podcast player it would help out a lot thanks